we were on the road with the Rolling Stones in 1972. So I remember that. That was a pretty profound experience in many ways. Uh, Why? What happened? Oh, name it. <laughs> the fall of the Roman Empire. I mean, you know, but how, how vivid a picture do you want me to paint? But paint it, you know, paint well, it extraordinarily Okay, I'll well. give you one. I'm going to get in a lot of trouble for this, but I'm going to fuck it. I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> what are they going to do to me? You know, yeah, I, wait a minute. Let me think. <laughs> Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Bussman. This week's conversation is with a guy who turned polio into Grammy Awards. Saxophonist David Sanborn. This is the first time I've ever had a deep conversation with David. I've always felt close to him in some psychic way because I've been friends with his sister Sally for a long time. When I was traveling around the world without a home for about a decade, I'd sometimes come through New York and crash on Sally's couch. One day, back in the late 80s, she took me to the television show David hosted, Night Music. Night Music was executive produced by Lorne Michaels, the creator of Saturday Night Live, and it was unique because it brought together musicians from various genres. Where else could you find jazz legend Miles Davis and the Red Hot Chili Peppers on the same show. The musical guests would generally come out and perform a solo, then they'd get together at the end and cook up something. It was pure creativity. And now David's bringing the concept back on his own. Artists across all genres come into his studio to discuss, explore, and play music. This time there's no audience, no script. It's simply a look into how amazing musicians create. If you want a sneak peek of Sanborn Sessions, you can check out Dave's Facebook page at David Sanborn Official. That's at David, D-A-V-I-D, Sanborn, S-A-N-B-O-R-N, Official, O-F-F-I-C-I-A-L, and learn more about the new concept. If you're younger and are just hearing about David, You can also go to the internet and call up a tier four crystal. Reminds me of walking the streets in New York City as a young man at four in the morning after a great night in the bars just before the approach of dawn. In my mind, the tier wasn't for crystal. It was for a wonderful evening of stories and laughter with friends that could never happen in quite the same way again. Before we get started on the path to Dave's Rolling Stone story, I wanted to thank you for filling out the survey that will help me determine the direction of big questions. You can still take it at calfussman.com backslash survey. Got some great responses to the question. If I could give you a gift, what would you like it to be? Tell you all about those responses at the close, but first, you're probably interested in getting to that Rolling Stone story. Here we go with David Sanborn. I kind of like to go back to the roots and just see how you started in music. Uh, Because I know your sister, Mm -hmm. uh, I 
used to stay with uh, with her when I crashed in New York. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I have a little little bit of background. I also lived in St. Louis for a while. Mm. And I'm told that there was a certain night at a basketball game yeah. that set your journey off. What happened? Well, I can give you a little background on prior to that moment. I had polio when I was a kid. I got it when I was three years old, 1948. There are three kinds of polio, bulbar, lumbar, and transverse, three kinds of polio. I got all three. So I was in an iron lung for a long period of time. What, what is an iron lung? It's a, to assist breathing. For, because what happens with polio is all the muscles just shut down because the nervous system, I'm not sure of the exact physiological mechanism of it, but basically your body shuts down. You can't breathe on your own. You can't, you know, you can't move your limbs. It just, nothing works. And so this is a, a giant, like a vacuum tube that you slide the patient into. It's a giant cylinder and it has a rubber seal, very tight rubber seal at the neck. So it becomes a, a vacuum tube, I guess, in, on, on the inside. And it breathes for you. So pressure, it's forcing pressure. Yeah. It's, it's forcing air into your yeah, lungs. Exactly. And so you can, you know, forcing air out of your lungs, getting expelling the CO2 and, you know, and pulling in air for you so you could fill your lungs and then get, you know, blood gas exchange and all that. Um, so you're a little kid. Yeah, three years old. I'm in this fucking machine. There's a mirror up there. You know, that's how I, my view of the world. And then after that, I was paralyzed from the neck down for a long time after that. So beside being traumatic, it just kind of, you know, sets you on this path of the other. You know, but are I'm you even like, thinking musically at that point? Well, not consciously. You know, I was, I was three. Right. So, I mean, only just peripherally. I, had, I didn't isolate music as a specific experience. But in recovery, when I got, got out of the hospital, I was laying in bed like especially late at night, I would listen to the radio with all the lights off. You could get stations from Texas, from Chicago, from Memphis, other state, you know, stations in St. Louis. So I was I was hearing Hank Williams, Howlin' Wolf, Charlie Parker. Everything was mixed up depending on what station was on. And it was like this, it was like the movies. It was just like, wow, there's this world out there of just great stuff going on. You know, although I didn't think this thought at the time, it's just this incredible panorama of humanity. These people telling their stories, their version of the truth. That was what came through to me about the blues. It just sounded like the truth to me. You know what I mean? I don't know how else to explain it. I don't know if it was a conscious thought. I just, it was like, I just need to be around that. Whether I'm playing or I'm, whatever it is, I'm carrying the instruments or wh- whatever I could do to be around. It just became more than just like, oh, that's really nice. I internalized it to such a degree. It felt like it helped bring me back to life. Now, you at, the, I mean? at this point, are you able to move or? or Not, no, gradually I became, you right. know, and then I was in a wheelchair. But my mother, God bless her, would take me. My, I was born in an Air Force base in 1945. My parents would take me down to Florida, in, in Tampa, Florida, where my father was stationed, where I was born. They went down there to um, help me 
convalesce, I guess. And, you know, my mother would carry me into the ocean every day, you know, just dragging this. You know, she was about 5'3". And at this point, I'm close to five years old. So I'm, you know, half the size of here this woman is, lugging her son into the water and floating me in the, in the Gulf of Mexico oh. and then moving my limbs. Because they thought they were going to have to send me to Hot Springs, Arkansas, to a convalescent center. And which basically is like, okay, see ya. My parents said, absolutely not. And so your mom had you in the, Brought me in back the water and, me, and, and moving your limbs. Came to walk, wow. came to walk again. And then, but needless to say, when I went to kindergarten, I certainly felt like at the very least an outsider. Because I had just from three to five had gone through this, you know, like what? So I was pretty much stunned for the first <laughs> seven or eight years of my life. Like, wow. What? So anyway, jumping ahead, I just needed to give you some of the background. Right. Things. So I think the, what I'm trying to get across is the idea that music became more than just like, oh, that's nice. Oh, that's a good tune. It became this like, it's just much deeper than that. Well, I, I don't, I don't, I don't you know. You use the word the truth. I mean, it doesn't it get any like deep, truth. deeper yeah. than that. When I, when I experienced music, it was like, like eating or breathing. It was just like, I need this. I need this. You know, and saxophones, plus this is the early 50s. So there's Little Richard, Fats Domino, Jimmy Dorsey. All these saxophones are the solo instrument in popular culture at this time. So saxophones are everywhere. Earl Bostic, you know, uh, Harlem Nocturne, Honky Tonk, all these, these great things. And it was like these guys were talking through their instruments. The saxophone was like, they're talking and they're telling <laughs> stories. You know, these guys are storytellers. <laughs> and I went to, my my father was in the advertising business and he had season tickets to what were the, the St. Louis Hawks basketball team back then. Always playing the Minneapolis Lakers. That was the big, the Boston Celtics. And the, the Hawks later moved to Atlanta? To Atlanta. Right, yeah, okay. Exactly. So you're, where are you watching the games in St. Louis? Yeah. Was that Keel Auditorium? Auditorium. Yeah. Okay. And one year after the basketball games, they had this uh, concert series where they had mostly big bands, like jazz bands. They had Stan Kenton, Count Basie, Duke Ellington, and they had the Ray, Ray Charles also. Ray Charles showing up after a basketball game? To do to a concert. Play. Amazing. With, with a lot of people stayed to hear the concert. So I was at the other end of the field house. And at this point, it took Ray a long time to get ready, to come out on stage to do the show. So he would send the band out, and they would do anywhere from 10 to 45 minutes, depending on the weather. <laughs> okay. You know what I mean? So the band was out, they were out playing, and they were playing this incredibly slow ballad, just a funereal tempo. Well, but even slower than that, because we don't have time for me to <laughs> accurately indicate the actual tempo. And I was at the other end of the field house and Hank Crawford, who had mostly a baritone player in that band, for some reason that this night he was playing alto, which he later played full time. He was playing a solo and the, uh, the sound system just cut off. So they could hear each other, but they didn't know that the sound system was off. And I was at the other end of the field house. I couldn't hear anything distinguishing about the band, just this kind of, but I could hear Hank like crystal clear all the way at the other end of the field house. 
And I said, wow, that's the best magic trick I've ever experienced in my life. So I immediately I said, okay, it's a great magic trick. Okay, first thing I got to do is go out and buy the hat. You know, and then maybe I'll afford a wrap a little later on. You know what I mean? So, and this was exactly coincided. This is what they call serendipity or divine intervention. Right about the time that the doctors recommended that I play a wind instrument for therapy, I'm 11 years old. So they said, what do you want to play? I said, saxophone. And I really wanted to play tenor, but I was too small. I couldn't handle it. It was too big an instrument. It looked like a baritone on me. So I played the alto. Plus, I loved the alto. I loved Earl Bostic, you know, Louis Jordan, and especially Hank Crawford. So I... What was it like the first moment that the saxophone was in your hands? I don't remember the first moment it was in my hands. I remember, you know, this is funny. I remember opening the case and I remember, I still have this memory, the smell of the case, the smell of the instrument, the smell of the case. It was like, I guess it would be the equivalent of like a new car smell. Oh, so it was a new, you got a new horn. I got a brand new horn. Yeah. Yeah. And it was like a little musty, a little, I don't know how to, it just felt like there was some kind of organism. You know what I mean? (laughs) It just, it really felt like this is not just an object, not a machine. This is like, you know, another limb or something. And I, you know, I played it and I had a hard time. I actually got thrown out of my grade school band. What? Yeah, I got kicked out because I couldn't remember the fingerings for the notes. So I kept having to write the fingerings above every note. I just couldn't. And I, I remember the, uh, the band director called my parents in. <laughs> And they said, uh, you know, I'm going to have, I'm sorry to do this, but I'm going to have to, David's going to have to leave the band because he's slowing down the other students. And I thought, you know, man, ignominious, man. <laughs> you get thrown out of like, you know, a grade school band. And this guy later was my high school band director, right? My junior high school band director. And and so everything was repaired down the road or? Well, somehow, yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, guess you didn't expect to see me again, did you? <laughs> like a bad penny. Just keep coming back. <laughs> so what was it like when you started to play? Did it feel completely natural to you? Or did you have to fight it a little to get a sense of control over it? I'm sure it was a struggle. But I just remember the joy of actually being able to produce sound. This was right about the time a little later on, like Rock Around the Clock and, all, you know, Bill Haley and the Comets. And so they, they used to sell these little, uh, I would play along with records. Oh, so, so on a turntable? And I would play along with, uh, you know, like Bill Doggett Honky Tonk or wh- whatever it was out at the time, you know. So you put the vinyl like, down. Yeah, 1956. And it's playing and then... Are you lifting the needle up and going back so you can? Well, after a while, you right. know, but I'm just, I'm kind of playing along with it and whatever. I'm just kind of just trying to immerse myself in the, into the experience. You know, and I'm imagining being in the band and like I'm playing a part and, you know, so whatever, I don't know, I have no idea how it sounded. And a friend of mine was, it just started the same time I did, was a drummer. He had a snare drum. And so we would get together in my bedroom and we would play along with like Bill Haley records or Bill Doggett records or, you know, whatever, whatever, Little Richard. And I just remembered my grandmother would stay with us a lot. And she'd just like 
please stop that. You know, because he was playing a snare drum and like, we're, we're just loving being in the experience of playing music. I was never very methodical about it at all, you know. And I never, to this day, I don't read music very well. I learned in college, but it was a struggle. And I still have a hard time with many aspects of reading music, time values and stuff. What was the situation with your lungs at that point? Had you recovered well enough to have full use of your lungs to take in the air in order to well, put I out guess the enough. sound? I guess enough, and that certainly helped. The instrument helped reinforce the... So it was actually helping you recuperate? I guess in a way, yeah. Yeah. Logically thinking about it, right? And then you do you know this is it? Like you knew when you, oh, you don't know. You heard it and knew I have to get. uh, I was just doing it. I was just doing it because I couldn't not do it. You know what I mean? All right. It was like, I, you know, I didn't have any grand visions about a career. I mean, I'm sure it's, you know, occasionally it was like this uh, thought of like, you know, imagining myself up on stage or whatever, you know, kids do fantasize about stuff. But it was never a, consistent, methodical, like, this is what I'm, my life is working toward, becoming a musician. What was the leap that you took that connected you with other really good musicians? Wow. I don't know. At some point, I guess I got good enough, or I'm not sure what it was, some level of competence, I guess, all my answers are a little bit long. So That's I'm okay. Sorry. Go I'm ahead. I'm, 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 no, I'm in, you can edit this the, down. Right? No, no. We don't want to edit anything. On, Just go ahead. Uh, <laughs> no notes you know, are going to disappear, okay. man. All <laughs> right. But I, uh, there used to be this these dances, especially in the warm weather in my area called Teen Towns. And a lot of the uh, regional bands would come through, like blues bands, rock and roll bands. Part of it was just the circuit that, that a lot of the uh, blues bands were. Albert King, Little Milton, those those are the two that I remember, and I remember them because eventually I ended up playing with them at these. But I'll just to digress. So I, my friend and I, the drummer, we used to go into these places and hang out, you know, the dances, and we would be the ones that would always be to the side of the stage, like watching the band, right in front of the stage and watch them. And every time they came through, <clears throat> we would go see them. Eventually, the piano player, a young guy, not much older than us, we were like 14 or maybe 15 at that point. This piano player was probably maybe three years older than us, but he was like, he's a professional musician. He's playing with Albert King or Little Milton. And he saw us and kind of, and we struck up a conversation with him. And he said, so you guys are, you know, musicians? He said, well, we're, we'd, you know, we'd like to be. And he said, all right, well, and I have, to this day, I have no idea what possessed him to say, hey, why don't you, next time we're here, why don't you come in and sit sit in with us? I'll ask little Milton, Milton Campbell, if it's okay. And he asked Milton, and Milton, for again, some God only knows reason, said, okay, because maybe he just was, took pity on us, or he saw these, like, children, basically, asked to play with him. He had no idea if we could really play, but I guess he figured he, there was some kind of way he could check it out or whatever it was. So the next time we were around, he we brought our instruments, or I brought my instrument. My friend didn't, he was not 
equipped to play the drums because there was only one drummer. But there was another saxophone player with Milton. So I, I just played a little bit for Milton before down off the stage. And he said, oh, all right, okay. So the tenor player, whose name was Leo, Leo Littleman, he said, okay, Leo, show this kid what to, what to play. And Leo gave me this very simple background part for the blues. So I can go on, da-dum, 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 da-dum. But again, very slow and simple so I could do it. And I was up there and Milton started singing this tune, the blues. And I watched Leo and we played and it was like, that was like being on a rocket ship. I'm playing with real professional musicians and I'm up there doing it. It was like, this is it. I don't know. It's like junkies describe that first rush. Yeah. It was like this roller coaster into this star blind bed of marshmallows kind of just like <laughs> being, it was just it was extraordinary i was hooked was at that time was there segregation oh yeah oh my god big time st louis my high school was segregated until a year before i got there all the movie theaters in St. Louis were segregated. Fox Theater, when you've been, you've yeah, been in I bet, Louis, right. So, so what was it? Like the white people were on the on the ground, and African Americans in the balcony. Or there were did, no African Americans in the audience. Oh, they wouldn't let them in. They didn't go. I don't know if they wouldn't let them in, or they didn't wow. go. Because at this point, I didn't know. I didn't. I didn't become aware of actual segregation until a few years later when I was actually playing and these guys became my best friends that after this experience, I got a little, I learned a little more. And then I went home and I learned a Sonny Stitt solo and I went down and, you know, sat in with a band and I played my Sonny Stitt solo and their, their jaws dropped. Not because, I mean, it was the anomaly of hearing this kid who looked no more than 10, you know, this is at 15 or 16. You know, maybe. Yeah, you're very useful looking. Always have yeah, been. Yeah, and I was even I would really look like a kid then. It was the anomaly, I guess, of seeing this little kid play. They didn't know it was a Sunny Stitt solo, but I was playing it and you know, I was in. So I started hanging out in Gaslight Square, which would obviously was way gone by the time you were there. But it was the it was like the Bohemian area of St. Louis. All these jazz clubs were there. And so I was, I was in, and I became friendly with a lot of musicians that played down there, 99% of whom were African-American. So these, became, these were the guys that I hung out with, and they became my friends. Was that a big— Lester Bowie, Philip Wilson. Like, what, what was that like back then? Was that accepted in the white community? or did, What? Um, for you to go off and be hanging with African-American musicians i don't remember people looking askance at white and black musicians playing together at that point especially in this particular area i mean i think outside of that there were black bands and there were white bands but that particular area was like it was almost like switzerland oh okay yeah you can go and emerge safe there because you know you know how those hip those beatniks are (laughs) but also you got east st louis which right is across all, yeah. the, right across all these jazz clubs, 90, 
well, they all 100%, which were, were black clubs. You know, and the jazz clubs somehow got a pass a little bit on, you know, even the other jazz clubs in St. Louis, because there was this recognition of the fact that we'd already, we'd already gotten past that. But there were certain, like at the society dances or, you know, the, there were white bands and there were black bands. And George Hudson was the black who would go play for dances. And Russ David was the white guy who would play for the white people. But there was certain mixing racially in the performance of the music and even in the audiences. What was it like? Would, would you go to black clubs and be the, the only white guy? That's what, that's what I was going to ask. Did you, what's it like being the only white guy, very young looking, mm-hmm. only white guy as you're walking in with your horn? What's the expression? I was with guys that looked out for me. Okay. Black musicians that looked out for me. And I never felt, uh, maybe I was just blind to it. Were you embraced? animosity. Were you, were, were you embraced? What's he doing I was here? either embraced or given a pass somehow because I was with my black friends and they pre-validated, they validated me. Okay. Or they said, he's with us. You know, so somehow I was able to get access to these places where in all honesty, most of that feeling that I talked about as a kid early on, most of that experience was in African-American establishments. I got most of that there or in that milieu, you know, of like being in those situations. And I was, you know, my friends, the guys that I played with were almost exclusively black musicians. Philip Wilson was my, one of my best friends, if not my best friend at that point. And we were always playing together. We, we were always together. He always brought me into these places because he was fairly fearless and he was close to me and he, he wanted to just, I don't know what, what his motives were, but I, I never felt them to be any less than just compassionate and, you know, thank God that he, he did. And your life would have probably been very different. Very different it- without Philip. Absolutely. Very different without Philip. Which direction did it then go? After that? Yeah. You know, when I left St. Louis, I went to college. I went to Chicago, went to Northwestern. Because my parents, when they f- realized that I was wanted to become a musician, were horrified. And oh, your I dad's in why. advertising. Yeah, and, and I like, wanted something. Gonna, and he's saying, and and you know, from his perspective, I can I can appreciate his concern. You know, <laughs> because he was. Uh, this is not a regular job. No, it's not a job. Right. Not a job at all. Like, why not do, you know, go to business school and do music on the side, which was his sensible advice. After saying which side, yeah, I said, well, I, in a way, I was not capable of doing anything else. It's the only, certainly the only thing I had any passion for. So there was really no choice. In a way. So I went to music school as a, I think, an education major. I think that was what, you know, because I couldn't get in as a performance major because I didn't really, I wasn't a classical you know the the way that you actually held the horn was that affected by the yes po- how how did that affect the way you hold the horn oh, completely because I hold it off to the side because my I left my left arm I can't raise it higher than the lower middle part of my chest so, so I have to you like stand musial or a batter with a unique stance. That many people over the years would like start to copy, and I throw I, my my little finger is, is double jointed, and that's always 
And that's also the finger on my weak left hand. So when I play, this finger goes up so I can reach the other notes. And I, you know, I see these pictures of me and my little finger sticking out there. Absolutely no non-functional. It doesn't make sense for that go up. And I, <laughs> I've over the years observed people who like play like to the side and do that. <laughs> I'm like, you don't understand. I have to do that. <laughs> if, you know, what I want to do is stand straight and keep all my fingers on the keys. <laughs> dumb motherfucker. You know, it's like, it's like, God damn, man. Come on. Oh, man. <laughs> so once you, you go to, you go to school now, it, it, obviously this is in your head. I know I'm going into music. Yeah. What's the next step after that? Well, the first day I got into Northwestern, uh, there was this classical saxophone player named Fred Hemke. And he was like trained by this famous French saxophone player named Marcel Mule. Mule, <laughs> Mule, whatever, how you say. And so he was like a classical player. Like, you know, you know, and I'm like listening to Jackie McLean and Cannonball. And so he get, puts this piece of music in front of me and said, go play this. It was like some French piece called Concertino de Camera. And that's how it goes. And I go in there and play. You know, and I played like about, you know, maybe 30 seconds of this. And I stop and there's complete silence for like a minute. And I'm, I'm getting really uncomfortable. And he just looked at me and he said, how did you get in here? <laughs> I remember like, how did you get in here? <laughs> and I'm like, well, I don't know, Fred, but here I am. <laughs> and then he was like, okay, all right, first thing we got to do, everything you're doing, stop. You know, and he just, he taught me. I learned how to read music there. I learned uh, some kind of regularity and phrasing. I learned about tonguing technique, a lot of stuff. He busted my balls, but in a good way. I mean, because he, somehow he took, whether it was a challenge for him or we became very, very good friends because he saw that I was working hard and that I was committed. And somehow maybe he sensed the fact that I love music, whatever the direction I was going to take. And he, you know, this is the, the task in front of me. So this is an important piece here because yes. this is structure. Yes. And reading and, and discipline. Right. And I never practiced so hard or so long in my life as I did in college. I would sometimes practice six, seven hours a day. Never went to class. Practice all day long. A lot of the other guys that came easy to, I had to work very hard just to maintain. And I was still at the bottom rung. I was never very exceptional at all. You know, far from it. But we see some of the pieces being put together here, yeah. which ultimately is going, it, it's in my mind, as you're talking, I can see why you had this love of bringing all these diverse musicians oh, together. Because it's, it's, it's reality. Jazz musicians, for the most part, don't just sit around listening to jazz, you know, and they have an appreciation for a wide range of music, you know, classical music, you know, pop musicians listen to jazz, listen to classical music. So the idea that 
of bringing the, all these people together is not so outlandish in the world in the musical world. So this is like Robert Harris Theater, Billy Holiday digging Jerry Mulligan. You know, it's not just my little corner of the world here. It's like all this stuff is going on. Joe Lovano, one of the greatest tenor saxophone players ever, made a record of themes from operas. And it's not like a, a marketing device. It's like because he loves the music and he relates to the music. And it's just, it's reality. And that's, it's, we were just trying to present reality. How do you get from that point to putting out an album? I was a sideman for a long time. I joined the Butterfield Blues Band in 67. And that's a mixed group, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And once again, Philip Wilson. I, was, I went out to San Francisco to stay with my friend, the drummer, my childhood friend in San Francisco. I'm walking down Hate Street. I see Philip Wilson <laughs> on the street, right? I know this, all this shit sounds made up, but it's actually what happened. I saw Philip on the street. I said, what are you doing here? He said the same to me. He, and Philip said, I just joined the, the Butterfield Blues Band. We're playing at the Fillmore Ballroom tonight. Why don't you come down and see us play? <laughs> oh, man. So I went down to the Fillmore. I heard him play. I hung out with the band for the next two nights they were there. Philip said, hey, we're going to L.A. to make a record. He said, why don't you come down? And I'm, say, I'm saying, oh, yeah, okay. And I have no clue how to get down. I'm going to get down there. So I take a bus to L.A. from San Francisco, a Greyhound bus. And I get to the bus station. I'm totally lost. I have no idea where I am. Philip told me he was going to be at Sandy Koufax's Tropicana Motel. So I hitchhike to Hollywood, to West Hollywood, and, and knock on Philip's hotel room door. He opens the door and I'm like, oh, okay. So I slept on his floor for a few nights and then went to the studio with him. And I was hanging out in the studio, you know, that Ruby Keeler moment. Like, hey, come on, kid. Now's your chance. Come on, come on and sit in with us you know, come and play on this one tune. So I, I went back to the hitchhike, back to the hotel, got my horn, hitchhike back to the studio and got my horn out. And I played on background on one of the, one of the songs. And then I guess I worked well enough. They, Butterfield said, yeah, come on and play on the, re you know, a couple more tunes on the record. I did that. Uh, they went down to Huntington beach to play a gig at the golden bear in Huntington Beach. It's amazing how those memories oh still God. stay with oh, you. Really strong. I mean, so these are, once again, divine intervention or serendipity or accidents, but there's an awful lot of them. You know, my takeaway from all this is I'm extraordinarily lucky. And are, do you become known as somebody who can easily adapt to a band? Or do you just I guess in retrospect, I probably say yeah i mean the thing the, the stuff that g gave me the most notoriety you know because i was doing a lot of different things i was playing with gil evans i went from from butterfield to stevie wonder i and then the last gigs i did were we were on the road with the rolling stones in 1972 i i remember that that was a pretty profound experience in many ways uh, why what happened oh name it the fall of the Roman Empire. I mean, you know, but how how vivid a picture do you want me to paint? But paint it, you know, paint well, it extraordinarily. Okay, I'll well. give you one. I'm going to get in a lot of trouble for this, but I'm going to fuck it. I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> what are they going to do to me? Yeah, I, wait a minute. Let me think. <laughs> I, uh, 
You want to try it, and then if yeah. if this bothers you, I will. Okay. Uh, we will edit it. I'll out. tell you. I just got to hear the story. It's kind of funny. Okay. Uh, so this is a, the right before we opened on this tour with the Stones, we were going to open up the Hollywood Palladium, you know, with the with the uh, Stevie Wonder's band. So the Stone Mick Jagger invited us up to this house in the Hollywood Hills that he was renting for you know while they were rehearsing. Well, all of us were rehearsing. And um, we came up there and had dinner and, you know, just hung out and had drinks. And, and at one point after the meal, Keith Richard comes around to various points in the room. Uh-oh. Dumps out these giant, you know, like, seemed like a big gallon bag of Coke. Like he dumped it out in there. I was sitting at this glass <laughs> coffee table. So he would like dump all this blow out there. And I remember it was so funny. This woman sitting next to me brings out a length of surgical tubing that she must have anticipated this moment. And, you know, this big surgical tumor. And she, you know, puts it up her nose and snorts like, it would seem like a mountain of Coke. And then hands me the tubing and I go down to, to ingest it. And I look on the other side of the coffee table, is this guy filming? <laughs> oh, no. It's Robert Frank, right? You know, the, the photographer, filmmaker? Yeah. And he goes, and before I can say anything, he said, I'm, I'm making a movie. Don't mind me. And I'm going, fuck. Man. I'm, I'm definitely not in Kansas. You know, that's really, then it went, went, got even more out from there. You know, they had their own plane. They moved in a bubble, these guys. And they were at the, at the eye of the, the storm. So it's like there were casualties all around, but they were relatively untouched. And th- there wasn't as much drug use as one might think. Certainly, the obvious suspects were. But I don't remember seeing Mick Jagger do blow. I mean, I'm sure he maybe did some, but I don't remember him as being particularly at all drug-addled. I just didn't see it. Maybe it happened, but, I mean, Keith, which is, you know, it's public knowledge right. about how unhinged he was. You know, he's talked about it. But the rest of the guys, I just didn't see it. And even Keith, God bless him, they, these guys loved music. It was clear because every chance we got, they would, if we were in a, a city for more than two or three days, they would find a studio and we would go and just jam. And so it was just like, pure passion. They, huh. These guys are music lovers. And I think that was the thing that impressed me the most, this joy of playing, which is probably why they stayed together so long. And I related to that passion. So are you kind of like a pinball that's just ricocheting off all these different artists yeah. and everybody's saying, hey, come on, yeah. play so, with us. Yeah, so I played with, I played a solo on a Stevie Wonder record. The guy that was a, a pr- producer for the Butterfield Band, a guy named John Court, was very close to Mo Austin and, and Lenny Warnaker and Russ Teitelman. And they were producing a James Taylor record. And he recommended me, introduced me to James. And I played on a James Taylor record, How Sweet It Is. And I got a lot of notoriety from that. And then I, when I was playing with Bowie, prior to that, I was on Young Americans. I was on these two very high-profile pop records, How Sweet It Is and uh, Young Americans. And John Court, who was starting to act as my manager and producer, went to Mo Austin, who apparently Mo owed John a favor, and convinced Mo to get me a, a demo. And then I got signed to Warner Brothers. And John produced my first record 
called Taken Off. And that's kind of how it happened. But I was a sideman for that. And even after I did that solo record, I couldn't sustain a, make a living because I just didn't have an audience. But then James Taylor, out of the goodness of his heart, I think it was 74, 75, I was playing with his band on this tour, but another manager I had at the time, Teresa Del Pazzo, convinced them to have me be the opening act. So all of a sudden, I'm opening for James Taylor, who's playing these, which he's still playing, these sheds, you know, anywhere from 10 to 30,000 people every night. And all of a sudden, I'm getting exposure, and I would go and play the smaller markets or even places in that same city when James would take days off. So I built an audience, just kind of going on like that and getting a lot of lucky breaks. I was I was an amalgam of all my influences. And there are so many. Yeah. I mean... Yeah, really, Jackie McLean, Hank Crawford, David Fathead Newman. Elton John? Uh, Elton John. I don't know. I don't remember how I met Elton. I think maybe through Randy Brecker. So now that's a hopeless... I got so many stories. Miles Davis? Miles Davis, yeah. Through I, I met him through Gil. Gil Evans. Because when I first moved to, to Manhattan, I didn't have a place to live. So I lived at either Michael Kamen's house or Gil Evans' house. So I lived at Gil's house for close to a year with his wife and his, his two kids. Anita so you're coming into town the way I came into town and stayed with your sister. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> and I heard the Brazilian story too. <laughs> there, right? you the, go. The there you go. So I, you're playing with James Brown. Yeah. What's that like? Uh, it was interesting. Uh, that just happened through uh, the guy that was the arranger on my first record, David Matthews, was also an arranger for James Brown. I ended up playing on one of James's records, and then he had a a couple of occasions when he needed a saxophone player. Either you know Maceo was on the outs with him or was doing other stuff, and there was nobody else around. So I did a couple of gigs with him, but mostly it was on the, on that record. I think the record was called Hell. I'm not sure what the name of it was, but it was great. I mean, he was always, you know, very cordial to me. And, you know, I, I never ex experienced the bad side of him or Miles for that matter. Now, I probably got a pass with Miles because he thought, he always thought of me as Gil's boy. Gil somehow took me under his wing. And I was very grateful for that. But, you know, as you're talking, I, I just keep thinking of this word connection. It mm. just seems like you, you have this tremendous facility to connect with people who, who then either pass you to their friends or recommend you to somebody else. And that seemed to be how it happens. I mean, I don't know if it's any different than anybody else. I, it, certainly that was the way that it, it used to happen. Were you trying to make these connections happening happen or were they just happening it to just you? It seemed obvious to me. Well, I wasn't trying to do anything. I, I mean, I was just doing what I did. And somehow it fit in a number of different situations. But, I mean, I listen to myself and I go, I don't get it. <laughs> you know? You don't get it. swear to God, man. You don't get it. It's not false humility. It's just, I don't get it. I, somewhat I can hear. I can hear a certain distinctive sound or phrasing. But, you know. A tear a, for Crystal? Huh? You know, a tear for oh Crystal? Oh, my God, I love that song. Yeah. Marcus, but that's Marcus and I. Marcus Miller, I, I don't come up with this shit alone. You know, I need somebody to work with, bounce off of. Well, when I'm listening to it, like it, to me, it's coming straight 
through you and your well that's your horn. that's the talent of marcus miller is he can assume your voice when he's writing and you know marcus and i played together so long and he's we've been so intimately connected musically that that's the mark of a great writer that he can do something in your voice and have the humility to do that and uh, yeah ultimately steps aside and you're out on stage yeah yeah moving people yeah and all this as it starts to add and add and add and you're meeting all these musicians do you feel somehow at an, the epicenter of no i mean because let, let, let me turn it around all right why is my experience any different than yours no as i'm listening yeah. i'm really thinking about this yeah because that's exactly you live long enough and you try to stay awake this shit's gonna happen <laughs> you know what i mean but you got to stay awake you got to be awake for it that's the lesson that really emerges and that's then now we're getting into some spirituality it's about staying awake it's about paying attention and, and okay so here's something that like i noticed from my life let's see if it overlaps when I was traveling around the world, I would meet people. I needed a place to stay. I didn't have money to stay in hotels every night. Oh, that's frightening to me. And, well, how could it be? You would show up somewhere and, and be taken yeah, in. Yeah, it seemed different to me. It didn't seem as dangerous what I did as what, what you're describing. Okay, well, what you were just describing of getting to L.A. and then you hitch a ride to get to the studio and... I, I, no, I understand. I that was see what the same, it's the same thing. I, it's necessity. Yeah. It's like you do what you got to do to get done what you need to get done. But here's what where I'm going with this. I think I learned to read people's body language in a way that most other people didn't have to. And I'm wondering if you did the same thing while you were playing with people. Can you look at somebody or is it just done through your ear and know where to go? Uh, musically? Musically or? Well, when I had my wits about me, you know, if I wasn't using drugs or drinking, you know, which I finally discarded 35 years ago. It's almost almost to the day 35 years ago, March 7th, 1983. Not that I'm counting. Well, <laughs> apparently <laughs> it, it was obviously a big day. Well, it was certainly a turning point for me to recalibrate my path. Is it is it hard for mus musicians when they start to do drugs, does that incorporate into the music so that you're feeling, oh, without the drugs, I can't make this music? Well, that's certainly the story you tell yourself. So it's not and real, but fear. you believe well, it. it's a fear. And it's hard to separate truth from fact from fiction in that case you know i mean for for me you know there's so many appeals for drugs i mean the first time i i did coke it felt like falling in love i mean it really felt like it's you and me baby it's you and me that's scary you know this it, literally it was falling in love and you know when you fall in love sometimes this kicks your ass but it allowed me because i'm you know disabled my left arm and right leg. So being acutely self-conscious, it helped remove some of that self-consciousness. It gave me energy. It gave me the illusion of 
power and strength, all that shit that Coke does. And alcohol, it just, it's anesthesia, it's buffer, it's your armor. Do you want to go into battle without your armor? Oh. Is that risky? Well, yeah, if you, but then you got, then you have to learn how to become a ninja. You know, I mean, I'm making a very broad right. analogy, you know, whatever the fuck I'm doing here. Yeah. You know, but, you know, it's like you got to learn to move differently. You got to think differently. You got to pay attention. And as a musician, your job is to listen. That's what you're supposed to do. That's your prime, the prime directive. Listen. And if you're like so wrapped up in your own ego that which cocaine has magnified to a absurd degree, then, then you're not going to be able to listen to anybody because you don't care what anybody has to say or what anybody else is doing. You care about how it how it makes me look, you know, or how it what about me and I'm my solo. And you know, oh. and the truth is you're not playing a solo. You're just you're still playing with the band. Maybe you're, you've changed the perspective a little bit. And that's the thing. I forgot that that's what it was. It was about being in a group of musicians that were playing together. It wasn't about, I'm standing in front grandstanding here. That was the appeal of music to me. I was communicating with other people. We we're having a conversation. That's the essence of what music is. It's, you're having a conversation. You're telling a story, but you're doing it collectively. And you're doing it in, in coordination. And it's like, that's magic. It's fucking magic. And you're making magic. And, you know, to do something that gets in the way of that, it's just common sense is, is fucked up. What's the moment that you realize, hey, this is too fucked up. Stop. Well, when people stop having anything to do with you. <laughs> well, I, wasn't led the, I wasn't led there willingly. And re really, really, I stopped enjoying it. I stopped getting high. It, I wasn't getting high anymore. I was either hungover or fucked up. Oh, and there was, no, there was no joy in between anymore. And it's just like, this is so fucking tedious. You know, it just got to be. Was it taking the music down to quicksand too? Well, it, it, pretty soon it became secondary to getting high. First order of business, get high, then play music. And you're a slave. Bottom line, you're a slave to something. What was the moment that you knew, okay, it's got to stop? I don't think it was a moment. I think it was just a process. I, I, even when I was, you know, started to get sober in a, in a group of people who help you do that, I was not convinced that I, you know, I thought I just needed to recalibrate. And maybe I could then, then use drugs and alcohol sensibly. Oh, you know? man. I mean, and then, now you're talking... That's what they call insanity. You know, I can sit around it and just sip single malt scotch. <laughs> you know, this is the image I have in my head. And I go, are you fucking kidding me? Sipping like Kalila or whatever the, you know, I love the aesthetics of alcohol, like wines. I get it. In, a, in one kind of way, I could, which it's an area of art I wish I could appreciate, but I can't. So I don't. Okay, that's fine. But not for me. Because I, I don't know how to deal with it. And I'm okay with that. I don't need to learn how to drink sensibly. I'm not interested anymore. I'm just not interested. I'm interested in other stuff. I'm interested in my version of what being awake is. And it does not include alcohol and drugs. And how, do, how does that move you musically? Well, I, I start 
realizing that all we have is the moment. And it connects me to life, to the, the way life is. It's like you can't, there's nothing you can do about the past and you can't control the future. So what are you left with? There, there was a, you know who Lord Buckley was, right? Lord Buckley, don't know. You don't. Don't know. Do yourself a favor, look up his, he was a, a, a comedian from Chicago and he affected a very thick British accent. He wore a little pencil mustache and a pith helmet. My lords and my ladies of the royal court. And then he would tell these stories and like kind of talk about the Gandhi, the hip Gan, or, or Jesus as the Naz. You know, oh, look what the Naz put on that boy. And anyway, at the, at the end of one of his stories, he said, and my lords and my ladies of the royal court, the moral of the story is, if you get to it and you cannot dig it, there you jolly well are, aren't you? And I thought, you know what? That's all the... There you jolly well are, aren't you? There you know, it is. Like, what, you need the Dalai Lama to tell you that. But that's what they're all saying. It's like the moment. It's all the moment. And that to me, that's the truth of music. That's the truth of life. For me, that's it. And and one reinforces the other. And the, the better I get at internalizing that philosophy, the better musician I become. The easier I'm able to just let go and not think about trying to correct stuff. That's kind of what not getting high has done for me. And so that's the early 80s, 80, 83 or so? 83. When, 83. And by 88 is when night music makes an appearance yeah. where you're out in front of the country Sunday nights mm -hmm. and you're bringing together all these diverse musicians. Yeah. I never seen anything like that. Yeah, it was pretty unique. What was the feeling as you were creating this? And what moments do you have seeing these different musicians come and play together and watch e each other in the way you were describing uh, as a boy watching Count Basie and some of these great musicians uh, on TV in a room with cameras going around? You felt like you were behind the curtain. Yeah. What was it like for you to occupy that stage? Well, for me, I was just, you know, it was a mix of so many different emotions. And it was, you know, the sense of like, how lucky is this that I get to do this? But also there was that, uh, what are we going to do next week? Or what are we going to do this week? Or how are we going to pull this? Together? It was, uh, you know, being in the in the weeds a little bit about the nuts and bolts of getting things done, and where's Slim Gaylord? Where you know where's uh you know is Miles gonna is Miles late or blah blah blah? And just you know learning a tune that I'm gonna play with Dizzy, or you know something I'm gonna do with Sonny Rollins. You know every once in a while it would hit me. I'd say, God damn, I'm playing with Sonny Rollins on television. You know I'm playing with Hank Crawford or David Fathead Newman. You had and Bruce Springsteen on the show, right? No, no, Bruce never did the show. Oh, he never did the no. show? Okay, but for some reason Apparently I he wanted to, and Dylan was going to do the show, but we never got into our third season. We only did two seasons of this. I was traveling most, nearly all of that time, yeah. but I came into New York mm -hmm. and stayed on Sally's couch, and she took me to the show yeah. where you had uh, Toot Steelman on. Yeah. And I had never heard See? of... Toots before, and there the two of you are playing, and I'm 
my God, yeah. this is unbelievable. Yeah. How do I not know this man existed? Yeah. And he's the guy that did the Sesame Street. Oh, o yeah. Opening. So many other things. Yeah. yeah. It's exactly very distinctive sound on harmonica. And he wrote the song Blues F, too. He's a great, was a great guitar player, too. Ba ba da ba ba da ba bum bum bim bum bum bim bum bum. And it was a big hit for him, too. He's just this joyful character. It was a pleasure to be around him. What were the moments on that show where you saw these different artists from different genres coming together that stick with you to this day? Well, the moment that really sticks with me was the show that we did. And this, a lot of this was Hal Wilner's doing. Was The band Was Not Was, Leonard Cohen, and Sonny Rollins. And, we, you know, everybody did something individually. And then we did this moment at the end where we all played together. And it's one of those things like you look at it on paper and say, you know, this can't really work. But it, it just, I mean, it worked like a charm. And some great music came out of that. And I, I said, if we only did that, that was worth it. That's enough for me. Just to feel that I somehow participated in that moment or had any responsibility at all in, in helping to pull that moment together. I said, I'm cool with that, you know? And we had so many others, you know? But that was the one that, you know, was mo to me is most representative of what we were trying to do. So Red Hot Chili Peppers yeah. show up. Yeah. Never had been on television before. <laughs> yeah, they, I remember, it was like the Marx Brothers chasing the interns around. They'd run out in the hall naked and just maybe with socks on their genitals. But, you know, they were very uninhibited, you but, might say. And it was all taken uh, in the spirit, well, which is it, it was because intended. there were a lot of crazy shit going on then. I don't mean crazy like, you know, negative, not quite, you know, not of that nature necessarily, but... This is all, these are all Lorne Lorne Michaels people. So they're the production team, which was a, a fantastic production team for Broadway video. And Lorne, God bless him, man, he stepped up to the plate and really was incredibly helpful in shaping the show, you know, finding that interface between our, our, the artistic reality and the fact that we're on network television and we have that, you know, I don't know how he does that. How he, how he has to, he, walk, he walks that line. Because that's what he does with Saturday Night Live. Yeah, artists and, and, and mainstream. Right? Yeah, he just he doesn't. I mean, he's a master at it, and he he managed to to pull it off with us. And he would always be kind of pulling it back to a certain extent. We were always pushing that, you know. So it was a push pull, but he's he was always right. We may not have agreed with it, but he was always right because his idea was just let's just keep it on the air. Some of the shows we did, it would he'd be like. Whoa, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know. So wh what happens? The show uh, goes with two seasons. Yeah, mm -hmm. and afterward, what what are you left with? Are you left with this feeling of man? I I'd like to do that again because I I have a sense from the little that we've talked. You're mm -hmm. you're gonna make sure you get another chance at something like this. Well, some version of that sensibility, I think. My brother-in-law and nephew 
Steve Friedman and Noah Friedman, by the way, and and I, but mostly th- them, you know, have been shaping this show called calling Sanborn Sessions, where we do a very cut down version of uh, the idea of night music that we bring instead of four musicians, we bring two musicians in my house, which here we are. So it's fair. It's a very nice environment, you know, up on the river and kind of indoor outdoor thing and a nice studio is uh, present two musicians of hopefully diverse backgrounds. We had one of the shows, we had Jonathan Brooke, who's an amazing singer songwriter and uh, Charlie Hunter, a great, very unique guitar player. Like night music, they did a number or two by themselves, and then we did some stuff together. And in between, we just kind of, uh, you know, we eat and shoot the shit. But I think the premise, if, if there is one, or the question, whether it's specifically asked or just, you know, peripherally or whatever, you know, is creative process. Talk about how do you do what you do? Whether it's nuts and bolts, like you you write at the piano, or do you, you know, how does this stuff come to you? But try to make it a little more artful in the way we ask those questions. And just basically talk about the experience of what it's like to do what we do. There are as many ways to describe that as there are musicians. Because, you know, which I've said ad nauseum in this, this discussion we're having, you know, we're storytellers. We try to tell a story. So how do you tell a story? What do, what's the process of where do story, how do stories come to you? But do it in a way that leads in and out of the actual performing the, the songs. So we, you know, laugh and joke around and eat food and then come back and play a little bit of music. So it's very informal in that way, but it's manageable because we only will only have two artists. That, and, and there's a house band, Billy Kilson on drums. Ben Williams on bass and Andy Ezrin on keyboards. And they're always here. So, Do you find that a childhood curiosity comes to you when you're going through these sessions? Always. Absolutely always. Because I'm, if nothing else, I'm curious. The same way you are. I mean, you're asking well, me these I'm questions. Li- I'm what, what is it, what's it like? You know, <laughs> what's it like when you do this? Me too. I want to know. Because, you know, I'm doing this and I, I, you know, I find it almost impossible to describe how I go about doing what I do. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to press somebody else to try to tell me, you know, <laughs> of course I am. I want, I want to make you as uncomfortable as I am when I'm trying to describe what I do. No, I, I hear you. you I know hear what you. I'm saying? Yeah. Because I think it's good to, to try to, you know, get those kinds of answers from people without killing the magic. You know, because there's a certain amount of it that... Is indescribable. I mean, you're enough of an artist at this stuff that you know how to do this. You know how to engage in a conversation. So you make it a conversation. You don't, you don't make it like straight, you know, okay, what's my next question? You know what I mean? Right. It's like, that's how you do it. You make it a conversation. If we need to have a conversation and this is kind of part of it, then you get the straight shit. We're more likely to, you know. What does it make you feel like when you look at everything that's happened in the last 30 years from the time you're able to have that show on, on a network. Mm-hmm. Now we're in a completely different environment. Yeah. You know, I was in a hotel the other day mm-hmm. and they had a phone booth that you used to see on the streets in New York. Wow. Well, it wasn't a phone booth. It was a work of art. 
Yeah, of course. Now, it's it's almost hard for me sometimes to understand how fast things have moved. But now we have the internet. You can be an, an entrepreneur and you can do what you want to do and put it out to the people who want to hear it all by yourself, with your brother-in-law, with your nephew. Does that, how does that make you feel? Well, first place, you have to do it that way. You know, it's a necessity because there is no other structure. Record business is effectively over. I mean, they're still going through the motions. But, you know, this is uh, everything must go time. Because what we, you know, we're trying to make a living doing, doing what it is that we do. So, you know, when I came on the scene, you know, the record business was a reality and it was something that you could walk into. So to adjust to this new reality where you don't have this, you know, number one funding device and number two promotional muscle, you go, you make a deal for a record, they give you money to make the record and they promote the record and you make money. You get a portion of what they, of the proceeds. It's easy to understand. Now it's like, you know, you got to go here, you got to go there, you got to do cross-marketing stuff. It's a little more, the matrix is a little bit more complex. And quite frankly, you know, it's like trying to tie your shoes while you're running, for me, you know. Well, it's because you're accustomed to doing doing things things in a certain way. If somebody's 19, this is completely normal to them. Because they grew up, you know, typing with their thumb. Do you want to bring in a lot of really young music. Yes, yes, absolutely. Especially from the hip hop community. Because I, I, my personal belief is that jazz and hip hop are inextricably bound to each other. Because when, when I, you know, you hear rap singers, they're drummers. They're drummers. That's what, they, what they're doing. And they're, some of these guys, I mean, are doing some incredibly, like, so like Max Roach, man. These motherfuckers are just like, wow, I'm in awe of, of people like that. You know, Kendrick Lamar. I mean, Jesus, man. Eminem. The reality is that they're listening to a lot of jazz musicians. And a lot of jazz musicians. I mean, Robert Glasper was a co-producer on Kendrick Lamar's last two records. There's no difference. They not only don't recognize the boundaries, they don't even, you say boundaries or genre, they don't even know what you're talking about. It's like they doesn't exist. You know, it's like, why even think like that? Why even think that there's a boundary or a, you can't do that? You appropriate from wherever you can and you, you move the music forward. But this seems like it's your life. This is, this is everything. Well, yeah, it is. This is a whole arc. Philosophically, I guess, yeah. And, but also the arc of your experiences. Yes. It's- I'm always in the DMZ. I'm never, I'm, ne- I'm never, you know, a ship at sea. Some, you know. Somehow I'm always in the DMZ sounded like it should be the last line yeah. on this conversation, yeah. right. but it won't be because I, I want to now tell you have your questions. I want, no, <laughs> <laughs> no, I have, I'm going to do one last thing. Okay. First, thank you. That was amazing. My pleasure. It was a pleasure talking to you. I learned about myself listening Mm. to you describe your arc. This whole sense of connection. Mm -hmm. I I just was seeing the overlaps. Yeah. Me on a bus. Yeah. Trying to meet somebody who was going to 
invite me home. So I had- you Changed your life. That's right. I had, where, where you had a, a gig or a, a studio mm. to play in with somebody, I, I had a home where people took me in for a few days. Yeah. And I learned from that same way you learned. Then we moved on. See, I find that magic that you can do that, that you have that ability. That to me is a magic trick. You know what I mean? You saying? got the magic well, trick, brother. But you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I got like, it. Yeah. That's your art. That's part of your art of what you do and how you get, you get gather the materials to do what you do. I look, I look at that and I go, how the fuck did he do it? You know what I mean? <laughs> well, it's like me looking at you on the saxophone. Well, that's hopefully why we're here for each other. All well, of us is to, you know, and understand that we're basically doing the same thing. All of us. Everybody's trying to figure this shit out because we're all making it up as we go along. I mean, let's be honest. All of us, everybody, Donald Trump, uh, Barack Obama, we're all making it up. You know, just... We're just telling stories. Telling stories, right? And tap dancing as fast as we can. <laughs> you know. That about sums it up. Wanted to thank Tim Ferriss for getting me to start this podcast so I could have this conversation. Also, Sally Sanborn for her friendship and hospitality over the years. With that friendship came a friendship with Steve Friedman, her husband, and Noah Sanborn, her son, who are now working on the Sanborn Sessions with Dave. Man, I used to spend Christmas Eves with the three of them, along with my wife, La Gloria, and my three kids, Dylan, Kayla, and Brigitte, watching Tom Hanks in The Polar Express. Hot, hot chocolate. Where does the time go? I hope I can have memorable moments like that with all of you as I get around the world to speak. I want to thank those of you who sent photos of the cities and towns where you listen to big questions through calfussman.com. Always makes me feel close to you. And some of your survey responses really made me smile. Listen to some of the answers I got from the question. If I could give you a gift, what would you like it to be? A Cal Busman dashboard dancer, shadow boxing in his iconic shirt. Wasn't quite expecting that one. Airline miles. A time machine to the past so I can meet a lot of people I admire who are long gone. Cool mementos of your adventures. A fedora. Invitation to dinner with you and Tim Ferriss. A lucky charm. A printed collection of your writings. A Skype mentoring session. A good book. Personally, wrote one listener, I think your podcast is a gift already. Your responses were presents to me. Please keep them coming to calfussman.com backslash survey. See you next week. Cheers. Cheers.